Today on the Broadway Fix, the story of Broadway material girl Lorelai Lee, good news for Olivier nominees, and a chat with the Gay Justice League, the stars of The Boys in the Band. Happy Monday and happy Yom Kippur. I'm Paul Wontorek and this is the Broadway Fix for September 28th, 2020. We're just two days away from the Netflix premiere of the new film version of The Boys in the Band, reuniting all the stars of the Broadway production. I got a chance to talk to them later in the show, but first, let's see what's in the news. Over seven months after nominations were announced, the winners of the 2020 Olivier Awards, the biggest prize in British theater, will be announced on October 25th on ITV in the UK and on YouTube. Originally set for April 5th, the awards were postponed for the COVID-19 pandemic, but will now happen at the London Palladium in a mostly pre-recorded show of some special performances and some interviews and, of course, some trophy giving. Comedian Jason Manford will once again host the awards for the third year in a row, and the big show nominees are the pop musical and Juliet with nine nominations, Trevor Nunn's production of Fiddler on the Roof with eight, and Dear Evan Hansen with seven. Rounding out the MasterCard Best New Musical category are two other musicals that first premiered on Broadway, Amelie and Sarah Bareilles' Waitress. Also in the news, the New York Times reported over the weekend that Broadway actor and director Tony Tanner died on September 8th at the age of 88. Born in England, where he started his career, Tanner arrived on Broadway in 1966 to replace Tommy Steele in the hit Brit musical Half a Sixpence, right after he had starred in the Anthony Newley musical Stop the World, I Want to Get Off in the West End, and also starred in a film version. In the 1970s, he starred in Broadway plays like No Sex, Please, We're British and Sherlock Holmes before transitioning into a director-choreographer career. He earned two Tony nominations for helming the New York premiere of Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice's Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat, the most famous of his five Broadway directing credits. Fun fact regarding Joseph, Tanner says it was his idea to cast a woman as the narrator in the show, having first given the role to the fantastic Lurie Beachman on Broadway. So to all you big voice ladies out there who have enjoyed belting your face off in Joseph, you owe it to Tony Tanner. I'm Caitlin Moynihan, and here are the top three to see. Tonight at 8 p.m., Telly Leung, George Takai, and Ellie Wang of the Broadway musical Allegiance are reuniting online. How history, location, and adversity inform, inspire, and influence theater is a live stream conversation that will benefit the Actors Fund, hosted by E2E Trex. Tune in tonight on the Actors Fund Facebook page or visit e2etrex.com. Tomorrow at 7 p.m. is a fresh round of Broadway Buskers, featuring a 30-minute set of original music by Taylor Amon Jones of the upcoming The Devil Wears Prada musical. It's a way to give Broadway performers a chance to show themselves outside of the Broadway scene. Um, I think that's always great because I know so many friends, you hear them sing, you know, maybe that one or two songs in that one show, and you're like, cool, that's what their voice sounds like. But then you hear them sing stuff they wrote, and it's, a complete shift of character and it's really fun to see your colleagues and um, get to experience them in that way. Watch the concert live on the Times Square NYC YouTube page. With 36 days until election day, everyone is talking politics. Ready to sink your teeth into some presidential drama? 
Recent To Kill a Mockingbird star Jeff Daniels plays former FBI director James Comey in The Comey Rule opposite Brennan Gleeson as Donald Trump. Catch up on part one before the epic finale airs tonight at 9 p.m. on Showtime. Thank you, Caitlin. Now we have Beth Stevens giving you some Broadway homeschool on Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which first played on Broadway on this day in 1928. The story of Lorelai Lee, the world's original material girl, came from writer Anita Luce. Luce wrote a series of sketches for Harper's Bazaar that became known as the Lorelai Stories. They followed the escapades of a young blonde flapper as she entertained suitors across Europe before returning home to marry a millionaire. The sketches were turned into a book in 1925 called Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, The Illuminating Diary of a Professional Lady, which became a huge bestseller and a jazz age classic. Luce and her husband, John Emerson, wrote a stage adaptation that played Chicago before bowing on Broadway on this date, September 28th, in 1926, at the Times Square Theater. It starred June Walker and ran for 201 performances. After Luce's stage version and a now-lost 1920s film version, there were several other adaptations of the work, but it really became the toast of the town when it was made into a musical in 1949 with Carol Channing as the gold-digging Lorelei and Yvonne Adair as her wisecracking friend, Dorothy Shaw. The musical ran for 740 performances on Broadway. It featured a dazzling score by Julie Stein and Leo Robin with the signature number, Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. There may come a time when a lad needs a lawyer, but diamonds are a girl's best friend. There may come a time when a hard-boiled employer thinks you're awful nice, but get that I drill no dice. Of course, the song was immortalized by Marilyn Monroe in Howard Hawks' vivid 1953 movie version. But square cut or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their shape. Diamonds are a girl's best friend. Gentlemen Prefer Blondes had a few sequels, including Luce's follow-up book, Gentlemen Marry Brunettes, and Carol Channing's return to the character in the 1974 Broadway musical, Lorelei. By the way, many famous women have taken on the role of Lorelei Lee in productions all over the country. They include Jane Mansfield, Barbara Eden, Morgan Fairchild, K.T. Sullivan, and most recently on the New York stage, Megan Hilty. First premiering in 1968, Mark Crowley's The Boys in the Band finally landed on Broadway in the summer of 2018, becoming a sellout hit and winning the Tony Award for Best Revival of a Play. Now, it's a Netflix film, produced by Ryan Murphy and directed by Joe Mantello, and reuniting that fantastic gay band of brothers that first played together on Broadway. I got to talk to them about their stage-to-screen experience. Here are, in alphabetical order, Matt Bomer, Charlie Carver, Robin DeJesus, Brian Hutchinson, Jim Parsons, Zachary Quinto, Michael Benjamin Washington, and Tuck Watkins. You guys can't quit each other. It's like you had you spent summer 2018 together, and then last year you had, of course, an amazing Tony night, and then you got to make this movie, and now you're back together. I assume you like each other. Is that a safe assumption? Yes. The love is real. <laughs> Where the hell could Harold be? You can Happy birthday. 
You're late. Oh, Michael, you kill me. When he's sober, he's dangerous. When he drinks, he's lethal. That's your surprise. Zach, let me start with you. What's it like to have this beautiful document now of what you guys all created together on Broadway? To see how vital this play remains and, you know, the Booth Theater was just sort of electric every night that we did it. Um, but since then, you know, I've encountered a lot of people who expressed their disappointment that they weren't able to make it to New York while we were doing the play or, you know, didn't get a chance to see it. And so now the fact that we get to amplify that experience and share it with people all around the world and different countries from different cultural backgrounds. And I think that's the most exciting thing that really completes this journey in such a, a unique way. Brian, what was it like to reunite with these guys? And there was so much love going into the project. And I mean, from from Mart and and Joe and Ryan and all of us, I mean, to to a year later keep us all together to get to do the film is sort of unprecedented, you know. So that was just um, thrilling in itself and just fun from beginning to end. So you know, it's just a what a what an opportunity and what a unique experience. It was just kind of amazing. Robin, the boys in the band tells of a very specific generation of gay men. What is it like to be releasing this movie in 2020? I'm really excited for people to come in now that we as gay culture have fought for the rights, for, for our rights in general, but also made more folks realize that we're entitled to empathy, sympathy, and compassion. So when this movie originally came out, it was viewed sort of negatively. And there was this idea of this movie is about self-loathing gay men. And now I think we have the perspective to watch it and go, oh, shoot, there was a whole other character physically not in this room. And that character was the antagonist. And the antagonist was heteronormative society trying to oppress these people and shame them and other them and make them feel less than. And so I think now we have the ability and the intellect to go, oh, wait a minute. Some of these guys aren't self-loathing. They're just surviving. Michael, you're a real theater vet, but I think that you would agree that what was happening at the Booth Theater in summer of 2018 was a really magical thing. Were you worried at all about recapturing that on screen? And I've really been saying over the past two days, and it's been almost to convince myself is how magical the camaraderie of this particular ensemble in the Joe Mantello revival is, it's because it was nine American actors who understood the specificity of being gay in America in 1968. There was the trained actor there, there was the open actor, the out actor. It was a complete tribe of very, very open, friendly, giving people. And when you're playing characters that have to go to such dark, dark places, it was the safest environment to do this very dangerous work in. So to take that onto us from a, a stage on Broadway to a sound stage was probably the greatest masterclass I think I'll ever get in my life because led by our great Jim Parsons, who is so proficient in both mediums, it was just watching Jim and following him. That was the thing I was most excited about doing this film to see how he handled that camera. And it was a true masterclass. Jim, the character of Michael is he's a lot um and his self-loathing monologue is sort of legendary were you nervous at all about um trying to tackle this guy 
I was excited about it for those reasons because I knew that it it was something that was <laughs> a journey and that I didn't have the answers for. I felt very um, not overly scared because of the people I was working with. Um, Joe, first and foremost, that was the first person I knew, but on as more and more people were cast, it became a very safe environment. My only, my only fear was revisiting it um, for the film. I was very excited to see everybody again and be a part of our group again, but I, I had such a wonderful experience with all of us and this part in particular in that one summer on Broadway that I didn't want to tarnish that experience at all. Um, but it ended up being just the opposite. So no, I, the only time I was ever nervous was when I didn't know if I would be up to the task of doing it again for the movie. Um, but, but everybody, everybody involved made that a non-issue to be honest with you. I love how on screen we get to see the characters out in the real world, New York in the 60s with some location shooting. Talk, what was it like to walk in your character's shoes in that way? I think it was really rewarding to be able to book in the piece uh, as, we, as the nine characters enter and then exit at the end, because with a whole lot of nonverbal scenes, uh, but especially between, in, in my experience, between Hank and Larry, you knew exactly what was going on between these two before they even walked in the door. So everyone's informed as to who's showing up at this party before they even get there. One thing I love about Netflix is that I will just start watching, like every day I'm just like, what's new on Netflix? And I'll just start watching whatever it is. I think that's really exciting, especially for this, because I, I think about who might sort of stumble into this story um, and really, and, and it's such a beautiful um, telling of a generation that a lot of people don't really think about this generation and about sort of their story. And Charlie, is that exciting for you to, you know, obviously somebody buying a ticket to a Broadway show is very different than somebody opening their Netflix and seeing in the spotlight, boys in the band. Yeah, um, I think it's incredible. Netflix is quite frankly, much more accessible to a lot of people. And uh, to have this, have a simultaneous global release, uh, you know, it, it is a wide release and it's for a wide audience. Part of me thinks it's incredibly special that there is a sort of global moment here to have a sense of solidarity about an LGBTQ identity. And then the opportunity for people worldwide to, I don't know, step into a different period of history and un understand something about American culture and where um, where we are now and, 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 and what it took to get there. You know, I never thought I would get to meet Mark Crowley and it was so fun to have him on the Broadway scene when the play was running and of course to watch him win a Tony Award. Matt, what was it like for you to get to interact with him? Well, I think I speak for all of us when I can when I say that seeing him win that Tony that night and have that recognition at that point in his career after waiting 50 years for it will always be the highlight of this whole experience uh, for me. Uh, what I love about Mark, and it was the same with Larry Kramer, really, is that, and I've, I've said this before, they weren't helicopter playwrights. They, they really trusted, especially when you have someone like Joe Mantello at the helm, they trusted the artists involved to, with their work, to let it be the iteration and the manifestation of their work that it's going to be. Uh, he was available and present and uh, accessible if you ever had any questions about anything. 
And he, you know, this, this is a play about a generation of men who didn't have role models. And he ultimately became one of the greatest role models you could hope to have as a gay man. He was joyful and curious and fun and vivacious and, and uh, loving uh, into his later years. So uh, I miss him and, and I hope that he's happy with this new film version. And um, I'd like to think that he's uh, smiling down on all of us. Mark Crowley also had a lot of stories. He definitely lived a life. Anyone have any good stories you want to share? What about you, Zach? Well, I remember talking to Mart a lot about Howard Jeffrey, who's the real life person on whom Harold is based. And, uh, you know, that just so much of what lives in this play, this film, uh, was lifted directly from his experiences um, with his friends. And so I think there's, um, there's this added connection to the people, um, you know, who really influenced Mart as a person over the years um, and, and that he managed to capture something of them in all of these characters and their complexity and their vividness. And the fact that Mart was around to participate with us in, uh, in ultimately honoring them, even though none of us were able to know them, um, this is an homage to them. And so I think it's a, a, a deeper connection for uh, Mart's influence and for his stories and to really understand, you know, to hear him talk about Howard and their relationship. And um, it really allowed me to understand how Michael and Harold could be so vile to one another and yet, uh, and yet rely on each other so deeply and, and love each other so deeply. Um, I don't know that my comprehension of that dynamic would have been so complete without Mart's presence in the process. And, uh, and for that, I'm, I'm eternally grateful. But yes, I, I agree with Matt. He was so vivacious and, and he really did just move through the world with such a kind of elegance um, and, and a real understanding of, of who he was. Um, and that was hard earned for him, I think. Um, so it was, uh, it was all the more impactful to be able to experience it as we did. Michael, did you want to add something? The period when uh, an unnecessary rival playwright was making stabs at boys in the band publicly, and Martin and I went out for a drink. He was sober, but I was drinking, and I was just ranting about, like, aren't you upset, and if it wasn't for you, and blah, 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 and you could just see his little face lighting up like a little kid as I'm getting sober <laughs> And I'm like, doesn't this piss you off? It's like, oh, Michael, it's also eighth grade, but I'd rather feel young than old. And I thought the way you survived 52 years in this business is finding joy. Even when people hated your play and hated you for writing it, he always found the joy in that he put something out into the world and that it's supposed to have a visceral reaction. He was never precious about himself. And I think if anybody that's listening take something that's going to be in the business and maybe get your Tony nine months before you die yeah. at 84 years old. It's going to be the resilience and finding the joy, even in the pain throughout this entire journey. The fact that you are all out actors is unique and historic and inspiring. I would like to close by having each of you tell me sort of the best thing about going through this experience with this group of guys. Let's start with you, Zach. The memory I have of gales of laughter just cascading through the backstage of the Booth Theater and 
through the sound stages at Sunset Gower is uh, is the thing that I'll always remember and cherish, and that always exists between us, no matter you know how much time has passed. Brian, I have I have so many photographs of the uh, play um, backstage and of the film when we were making it, and I was looking through them today, and there's some videos on there of us just messing around, you know, during our off time or before the show started in someone's dressing room, and man, it was it's just fun, and it's fun to relive that and to have those photographs, you know, um, which I'll be sharing with these guys, you know, as time goes on. And you, Robin of Jesus. I've always identified as, not that it's a competition, but I've always identified as Latino first before I identify as gay. And so sometimes I don't lean into my pride for that as much as well. And there was something about being nine out gay dudes playing nine gay characters that really brought that out. And so I, I, I find that I'm, I'm a much prouder gay than I was before. <laughs> what about you, Matt? I think there's a, I agree with what Robin's saying. And, and I would also just say there's just such a shared sense of comfort and, and language and ensemble. And what I love about this particular group of guys, and I definitely include Joe Mantello in this, there was a shared sense of unspoken purpose that you could feel in the room from the very first rehearsal where everyone rolled up their sleeves. It wasn't just about having a party together and celebrating that we were nine openly gay guys. Everybody really rolled up their sleeves and put the work in uh, to the piece for, from the first rehearsal to the last frame on the film. And uh, yeah, I just, uh, I'm so grateful for the experience of these guys. It's something I'll never forget. I. I hope it's not the last time I get to have this kind of experience, but uh, even if it is, I'm, I'm, I'm just so grateful for everything that it became. How do you feel, Charlie? I'll add to what, to what Robin said. There was a sense of pride and then really a, a kind of strength that comes out of that. And that I think we felt with each other on set, but it's something that I know I will carry into the future and the rest of my career and the rest of my personal life. It's just, uh, it was an extra character that joined the cast. About you, Jim? Uh, the tribe element of all of us together, it connected with me at um, a very primal level that I didn't realize I was missing. And especially getting to go through this process twice in two different mediums, it really intensified and multiplied that feeling for me. And I'll just be forever grateful and at some level forever changed that I've gotten to be a part of this group and made these specific connections with these other men that, um, that I had never done anything like that in my life. And um, and I would be a lot poorer for not having done this for that very human reason. Beautiful talk. Ryan Murphy assembled sort of a gay justice league and he <laughs> handed each of us our cape and Joe Mantello taught us how to use our individual superpowers. We complimented each other. We never competed for space. And I feel like we really had Providence at our back. And we're not an exclusive group. Others are welcome to join. Well, let's be careful. <laughs> and what about you, Michael? I think the overwhelming theme for this entire three, four year journey has been joy, finding the joy in the work. I'm a very serious guy. And these guys reminded me to have fun. If there's not a sense of play, you're doing it wrong. And because he's not here, our great Andrew Reynolds, we were doing Heat Wave. And we were about to say action. And he's like, shine pretty boys. This is what they're going to play in the in memoriam when we die. Fraternity. Like, <laughs> 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 uh, so I love it. Amazing. Thank you all so much. It's so great to see you all together on my Zoom screens. I hope to see you all in person soon.
Yeah. Paul, hey. thank you. Hope you got your Broadway fix. We're live with new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 1 p.m. Thanks for watching.